Captain, we have them. We've established Transporter Lock, the Star Trek Discovery podcast. Join Ken and Sabriel each week as they explore strange new episodes, seek out new plots and new characters, and boldly go where no podcast has gone before. Hello and welcome to Transporter Lock, episode number 42 for August 2019, our first episode in four months. Welcome back, Captain Sabriel. Uh, hi. <laughs> Thank you. It's good to be back. It's good to record again. Yeah, there's been a lot going on that we haven't talked about, such as the first teaser trailer for the new Picard series, which is starting next year, and upcoming short treks. But we're not here today to look forward. We're here to look back on what we left behind. Oh, that's a good, good segue. <laughs> what we left behind is the D Space Nine documentary that was backed on Indiegogo a couple years ago. Full disclosure, I was one of the backers. It came out for one night only in theaters this past May and finally hit home video and streaming media this month, August 2019. We've both watched it and we are here to review it. Is that correct? Yeah, or talk about it, review it, uh, whatnot. You saw it back in theaters in May, right? Yeah, yeah. Um, Gosh, I, don't, I think you like, hey, it's coming out. Like, oh, shoot. So, <laughs> okay. <laughs> yeah, and I saw it as well with former guests of this show, Commander Janik. We had a great time. And now I just rewatched it on Blu-ray, as did you. Before we talk about the documentary, I want to ask you, Bree, what's your take on Star Trek Deep Space Nine? Uh, oh, my gosh. It's absolutely one of my favorite Star Treks. But then, you know, you love all your all your kids in some levels. But uh, uh, this is one of my favorites. I realized doing a rewatch a year or two ago, like the first time it came around, I was way too young to understand some of the things that were going on there. And so I'm glad I rewatched it as an adult because themes like, you know, you have the terrorism, you have uh, the war plots. I mean, cool. When you're a kid, you're like, yeah, explosions, war. <laughs> this is neat. But um, yes, yeah, so, uh, they, they really explored a lot of things with the Star Trek universe that were intended to go unanswered. Uh, but they're like, no, we're just going to, do these storylines and you know i love it for that i love it yeah it not only aired at a different time in our lives but also a different time in our country's history because it was all pre 9-11 yeah uh, with, with one of the main characters being what they call the terrorist it was like very much the 90s version of what a terrorist is uh versus what took over media a few years later it's challenging to wonder whether or not this show would air like it did back then if it were to come out today. And that's one of the things they talk about in the documentary. But even at the time that the show aired, there were a lot of things that made it very different from other Star Treks. The way it addressed religion, the serial format of it, the fact that it was on a spaceship that didn't go anywhere. I mean, a lot of people considered it like a soap opera in space. Or they also considered it the very first Star Trek created without Gene Roddenberry's input, and they felt that it bastardized his vision because this was the first Star Trek where there was internal conflict. The crew didn't get along amongst themselves. Yeah, that was always a big thing for Gene was, you know, like, humanity is perfect now in the future. And Deep Space Nine like, said, like, no, it is not. And I know they had a lot of fights in the background. Like, can we do this? Should we do this? Should we not do this? And uh, yeah, I think they made a sh show. I think they fleshed out the future much better ways than Gene Roddenberry ever could have alone with that vision. Like I love a utopian future. I miss that in sci-fi. I, I liked exploring people having flaws and you know, like the TNG characters, 
I mean, they had their flaws, but they weren't like serious flaws or they would be forgotten in one week and whatnot. And of course, there's exceptions, but all of these characters were so varied and so uh, human. It was really nice to see. Yeah, that's an interesting parallel with TNG, which was Starfleet and the United Federation of Planets itself was very much a utopia and all the threats were external. And on DS9, we had stuff like Section 31 and Starfleet infighting, and it was very different, but I also felt it was more realistic. It was more akin to Star Trek Discovery that we're now enjoying. Its take on serial storytelling was groundbreaking at the time because unlike TNG, which was great in that you could watch it out of order, with DS9, you couldn't watch it out of order. You couldn't miss an episode. And the way it aired made it hard to watch everything. But if you were able to catch them, it really paid off. Yeah, for me, D-Space 9 was Thursday nights at 9 p.m. on Fox. Oh, gosh. I don't remember when mine aired. But but one of the other things I liked about it was it was such a rotating cast of characters. I mean, there sure were this core set. But as the show goes on, you know, we get to see more about the Ferengi homeworld. We get to see General Martok become a bigger character. We get to see a different Dax arrive on the set. And there, and, you know, and Vic Fontaine was a major character, even if he wasn't one of the opening credits characters. I just loved how vast the cast was on this show. Yeah, we got to, for, for being a sh- on a space station, we got to see more of the Federation itself and not New Worlds. Uh, and there was some of that still in the start in D Space Nine, but for the most part, we got to sit down and actually explore these people that had been created, uh, either for D Space Nine or TNG. I mean, like you said, we got to go to Ferenginar, where on TNG, the Ferengi were this, supposed to be this war race that was turned into, um, uh, a comedy of errors. Yeah. And D Space Nine kind of kept the comedy, but they fleshed them out. It's like, no, they have someone called the Grand Nagus. Uh, they're not a military organization. Or there is a military wing, but we just don't really address that. Or, you know, uh, they actually do have families. We got to see the revolution of feminism on Ferenginar. We get to see uh, Cardassia grow and change. We get to see Bajor grow and change. Yeah, and even a character like Damar, who was just this background character who got the weapons ready to leading a revolution and basically playing the Cardassian equivalent of Kira Norris. It was just, yeah. you wouldn't see that on any other Star Trek. Oh, it was really cool. It was so many, oh, yeah, it was just cool. I <laughs> keep going, but yeah. So, did you have any expectations going into a documentary about Deep Space Nine? I didn't. You know, honestly, I kind of forgotten it was even being made until you pointed out, like, hey, it's going to be in theaters like in a few days. Like, cool. I didn't have any. I, you know, you go to documentaries expecting to see interviews and seeing, and basically it's what I got. But it was more fun reliving all the moments as they went through them, you know, like, like, uh, just the, you know, the, what they went through behind the scenes and whatnot. You know, I had just finished a rewatch of the show, like a year or two before this. So it's still relatively freshish in my head. And, uh, no, I didn't have any expectations, but I like what we got. You mentioned how you had just finished rewatching DS9. The only Star Trek that I have ever rewatched is the next generation. Everything else I saw when it aired and not since. So I have not seen DS9 since like 93 to 99. Oh, wow. So tw- so 20 years ago this year was the last time I watched Deep Space Nine. Oh, wow. Yeah, so I have all these very vivid memories of these very powerful episodes. And this documentary resurfaced a lot of those. And it was great to revisit them because 
I hadn't had that direct contact with this universe in two decades, even though I consider it in many ways my favorite Star Trek, even though The Next Generation is my first, the power of the storytelling in DS9 was just so resonant that it really stuck with me. And I really enjoyed going to this documentary to revisit it. One thing I didn't expect, even though I knew going in from all the Indiegogo updates I was getting that this was directed by Ira Stephen Bear, the showrunner for DS9, I found it unusual to have a documentary that is so meta, where the people who made the show are actually the ones creating this reflection. And he often spoke right into the camera to say, oh, you know, we are creating this documentary. Here's why we're creating it. Here's what we did 20 years ago, etc. I I liked it. I'm not saying that this unique quality was a bad thing, but you certainly can't suggest that this was an unbiased reflection. Oh, yeah. And they even admit that in the opening scene. Uh, They have... uh... Uh, drawing a blank on his name, the gentleman who plays Garrick. Andrew Robinson. Yes, come out there and say, basically say that, like, these are all the stories of the people, and to them, it's their truth. But what is real, we don't know. It's all true, Sabriel. Especially, <laughs> Especially the, the lies. lies. <laughs> <laughs> oh my gosh. Yeah. So, did you have any favorite parts of this documentary? Or what parts of it really stood out to you? I, the whole, okay, Terry Farrell, Jadzia Dax had a breakdown when they were discussing how her character left, or she had to leave the show. And it sounds like, I mean, we still only have her side of the story, or, or you know, varying, we have conflicting sides of the story, but that basically producers or creators or whatever, they, whoever on that side, I was saying, like, she was, you know, wanting more and wanting to do more, and she was like, you guys weren't talking to me, I wanted to keep being on this show. And, but the pain that was in her voice and talking about how she was essentially felt like she had to leave the show because she felt like she was being pushed out. Uh, that really, that was really emotional. That got to me because I love that character. I love Ezri, but you know, I love Jadzia. Yeah, I, you've been in my dining room. I am sitting down right now looking at my Star Trek wall where I have autographed photos personalized to me from Ezri and Jadzia right next to each other. They're both wonderful characters. And I was hoping that this documentary would finally shed some light on the mystery of why Terry Farrell left, because the public version I've heard is that she wanted to be on Becker with Ted Danson. But this documentary suggests there was more to it than that. And even Michael Dorn in this documentary says, we don't know the full story. We only know what they tell us. Yeah. So it's still a mystery to me, but I'm glad that Terry Farrell is still a part of the Star Trek universe, that she does these documentaries, that she goes to conventions and I've gotten to meet her and she's delightful. You know, and that there wasn't a bitter departure where she basically, she, either she or the directors went with a scorched earth approach. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. I'm glad for that. You know, they had so many actors, both Terry Farrell and Nicole DeBoer, in this documentary. It looks like it was shot at two different times because just based on their hairstyles, these were obviously not one sitting. And also Avery Brooks was in the documentary, but I think that was archival footage because they couldn't get him to be in this documentary to create new content. Oh, really? I hadn't heard that. Um, I mean, it was clear that it was filmed in different spots because I think one was probably at Star Trek Con because they were like in a hotel room. And other places are actually in a studio recording and sometimes they're in people's houses 
Yeah, the times that the whole cast was together, that looked like it was two different times. And yeah. I, I don't have the details in front of me. I'm sure it's a, in a review of this documentary published somewhere online. But I think that that was a different con, like somewhere in the last five years that they filmed. And so, maybe it was part of the variety photo shoot that they did for the anniversary. Oh, maybe, maybe. Uh, but I think some of that footage might have come up before. And then they went back and shot new stuff. But Avery Brooks said, eh, no thanks. Uh, you know, another thing that really, really uh, kind of got me, I like to find out more about Avery Brooks. My first exposure to Avery, not uh, outside of acting, I should say, uh, actually as a person, was in the Captains series made by William Shatner, where he interviewed other captains. I had never seen Avery Brooks outside of uh, his TV characters. And so to see this man who was extremely eccentric was really off-putting to me originally. <laughs> like, so much where I, I honestly did not finish the movie. Because of Avery Brooks? Not only, but... but and also William Shatner kind of... <laughs> it was a little weird for me to know, too. But um, his was just so jarring that it took me a while to like digest that. And now I'm fascinated by this man and, like, Really think he's amazing. Like, just seeing, like, they, the way people were talking about him and what he would do off, you know, when he was directing and what he puts into his acting, like, things I had just had no clue. And how people, like, even, like, um, Terry Farrell was like, she's like, the opening scene I had with him, he comes up to me and talks to me about, like, it's good to see you again, old man. And she's like, I can't play against the way you're saying this because you are just so powerful of a person. Uh, like, uh, your presence is so powerful. Like, had to work with him to temper himself down so sh- this, you know, like, early 20s actress can actually keep up with him on set because he's just so good and so passionate and has so much, I don't know, like, visceralness isn't the right word, but just so much presence that, like, I just, like, wow by this guy now. So many of the actors were so green when they went into DS9. I mean, Terry Farrell and Julian Bashir, they were in their 20s. It was actually a plot point in one episode that Julian Bashir was turning 30 years old, like, yeah. and he thought that was so old. And so compared to this guy who used to play Hawk and who we now know is not at all like his characters, but is no, no. less intimidating than Captain Sisko, just in a very different way, I can't imagine what it must have been like to share the stage with him. Yeah, uh, that's just, to be able to be in something with him, I was just like, I mean, it gives me chills thinking about it. Like, I, I'm not even an actor, and I've just, like, got a chill looking out the window here thinking about it. Like, <laughs> Well, Sabriel, you're in Fargo. Every time you look out the window, you get a chill. That's right, I get a chill. Hey, well, <laughs> um, but, like, like uh, they were talking about Far Beyond, or uh, Far Beyond the Stars, yeah. the episode that takes place where he's writing, and the scene where Avery Brooks slash Benny Russ's character having such a breakdown and the actors were talking about filming this scene and that the emotion that was there, uh, Avery is just gone for 10 minutes on the ground crying and having this moment. It's just like, wow, that passion he can put into this, into his something he feels so deeply about. Yeah, when they, just, when they called a cut, know. he just kept going. He couldn't come out of his character. Yeah. That's amazing. Yeah, so that was... I had heard, I had heard you know started to hear these things after the the scary incident on uh, the captains. I got to heard about this a little bit and actually hearing actual accounts instead of just reading about it and actually showing the clips from the scene as they're talking about it uh, really just kind of drove the point home and just how amazing that was and how 
what a person he is on stage. Were there other actors who you were surprised by how they came across as opposed to their characters? No, I think everyone else uh, is generally, genuinely very close to themselves. Uh, Nana Visitor is always this bright, shiny, happy beacon. Uh, uh, Alexander Siddig, I think he's, uh, Dr. Bashir, he's kind of the same thing. Uh, Rene Avergenois, uh, I've seen, you know, I see him in so many things. He's also a character actor. He's on like every show at some point, I think. Uh, um, he's amazing. I've seen Armin Shimmerman, Quark everywhere. Uh, no, no one else really stood out originally in Deep Space Nine anyway. I just loved how enthusiastic everybody was to talk about the show and to be amongst each other again. As you mentioned, Armin Shimmerman, Nana Visitor, Terry Farrell, especially uh, there was a brief part of the documentary that focused on those two strong female characters and just how amazing it was to have these characters on DS9 who weren't the nurses and the doctors, but were actually like the terrorists and the generals and the scientists. And it was amazing to have that. I knew that Nana Visitor and Alexander Siddig had had a kid together. This documentary revealed to me that they were married. I didn't know that. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, um, they were married for a while. And I love the scene where Nana Visitor, Clark Kira is pregnant and they're, they're in ops, her and Alexander Siddig. Uh, Dr. Bashir. And she's, she, as it was some point, she says, like, you did this to me. Right. Because on the show, <laughs> he had transported the baby into her womb. And so yeah. in the show, he did that to her. But there was also this meta context where, no, really, <laughs> you did this to me. Yeah. Yeah. That was a, uh, that was a great reference. I liked that. One actor who surprised me by how emotional he was thinking back on the show was Aaron Eisenberg. He played Nog, Quark's nephew, and I, wow, I, that character had a huge arc from being Jake Sisko's best friend to being a Starfleet officer to having his leg blown off. Spoiler, I guess. But wow, like this actor, in one moment, he's crying about how much he loved the show. And then in another, I, th- I think this was him acting. I don't think this was authentic. When they proposed killing Nog off, he like, oh yeah, it was totally. <laughs> he got so angry and he started swearing at the bleep it off, and he walked off the set. But everybody else was laughing and clapping, so I I hope that was scripted. But. Yeah, yeah, that was totally right to me. It's like, yeah, we're just doing this for yeah for for someone who like he he didn't seem to have like a major part in the show for quite a while. It was also kind of amusing. They got this older gentleman playing a kid. Who is a friend with a kid? Like, like he's way older than Kira Glofton, Jake Sisko. Aaron, Aaron Eisenberg? Yeah. How old, how old is he? I don't remember now, but he's, he's way older than... Uh, right now, Kira he's Glofton. 50 years old. I think that puts him... Oh, Jake is 41 right now, so there's a nine-year yeah. difference between them. So, wow, you're right. If Jake was... I don't know how old Jake was. Let's say he was 11 when the show started. That means that Rom... That means that Nog was 20. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, at that age, nine years is a big difference. Wow, you're right. Yeah, yeah, but yeah. I mean, he had minor bits part here and there, but you're always, you know, like getting some someone into trouble, and but for being such a minor character for so long, and then they, what the hell? What the show did with minor characters? Like, like they basically treat them like they were main characters a lot of the time. Yeah, and which sorry is amazing. Yeah, in a way, there were no minor characters because everybody had a part to play, and it really made a big difference in the end. Yeah, like a lot of ensemble shows don't, even like, like later Star Treks, like uh, or Discovery or Enterprise, they did, and Voyager did not do as well with the ensemble cast as I think Deep Space Nine did. 
which is impressive given how much bigger the ensemble cast was on Deep Space Nine. Yeah, yeah. I mean, we got story for Vic, we got story for Nog, we got Jake, uh, Wei Yun, like all 83 versions of him. Uh, um, I'm going to say Shram, but no, he was on Enterprise. Um, uh, well, Jeffrey Combs played every other character yeah, on both yeah. shows anyway, so. <laughs> uh, Brunt, like all these characters, you find out, you know, you get to know them. Uh, we're on, like, Enterprise, you know, more than the three char- main three characters, maybe four. You're like, oh, I don't know much about you, really. I know you're the guy who likes uh, this, or you're the, you know, but that's about it. Yeah, like a couple of years ago, when it was announced that Brock Peter had died, I thought to myself, oh no, that's Cisco's dad. That's so sad. He was such a nice guy and such an important character. Whereas, if you were to tell me so-and-so died, and I'd, I'd be like, who's that? And you'd be like, oh, he played Commander Riker's dad on TNG. I'd be like, oh, okay. Like, I don't know his yeah. name. He's not an important character to me. Whereas Brock Peters, like, I know that name. I know that character. I know that actor. These are important people because Deep Space Nine made them so. Uh, okay, what if I told you Barbara March died of the day? Oh, I think I tweeted that. That is one of the Bator sisters, one of the Dursa sisters. Okay. Yeah, yeah, it was Larsa, but... I didn't know her name outside of finding that new story out. No, you're right. If When I first read that Barbara March had died, I didn't know who that was, and I had to look that up. So uh-huh. this is new knowledge to me as of the last week. Yeah. But for some reason, like the characters and actors on DS9, like if you were to say J.G. Hertzler, I'd be like, oh my gosh, that's Martok. Or even, and there was one time when I was working at GameStop, and somebody came in, and they bought a game, and they gave me their credit card, and I went to swipe it, and I looked at it, I was like may I see some photo ID? And he's like, sure, why? And I looked at him and I was like, okay, I just want to make sure it was really you because your name is the same as a, as a celebrity. He's like, oh yeah, you're talking about Garrick on Deep Space Nine. Yeah, I'm also, I'm also Andrew J. Robinson. And he's like, uh, he said he doesn't get that too often, but every now and then somebody's like, are you on, are you on Star Trek? And I was like, oh. uh, you know, speaking of actors and people who were made famous, there was a DVD bonus extra where they looked at a very brief list of the other actors who auditioned or were considered for the part of Cisco. Did you see that? Uh, no, I missed that part, that extra, but I know one of them was um, um, uh, the doctor, uh, Peter Capaldi. Oh, the doctor. Th- uh-huh. That I didn't know. That's interesting. Yeah, there was a bonus feature on the DVD. I forget which one, but they pull up this list of all the actors who auditioned or were considered, and let me name off to you five names that you're going to recognize. You're going to say I recognize them, but I'm terrible with Hollywood names. (laughs) Okay, let's find out. William Sadler. No. He played Section 31 Agent Sloan. Oh, yep. No, I'm (laughs) no. Here's another name. Ernie Hudson. Uh, That name is familiar, but no idea what he does. One of the original Ghostbusters. Oh, yeah, duh. Gary Graham. Nope. Played Ambassador Soval on Enterprise. Okay, yep, yep, now I know, yeah, now I know, yeah, because he's like, uh, I remember the uh, alienation intro, and he's bashing his car. Uh, (laughs) (laughs) Also from Star Trek Renegades, if you back that. Yep, yep, I have watched that. These last two names I think you'll know. Tony Todd. No. He played Worf's brother, Kern. Oh, yep. (laughs) <laughs> and he also played a, adult Jake Sisko on The Visitor. Yes, he did. Yes, he did. That was an amazing episode. And Bruce Greenwood. Nope. He played Captain Pike in the reboot movies. Oh, there we go. Yes. See, so I do these, know. Were, these were all people who were considered to play Benjamin Sisko. Wow. Yeah, that's and fascinating. And Peter Capaldi. 
Well, yes. Peter Capaldi course. tried out. Whether he actually was considered, I don't know. You know, you mentioned The Visitor and what a great episode it was. There were a lot of specific episodes that I remember fondly that were not mentioned in this show, in this documentary. And they briefly talked about that in the credits where mm-hmm. Nana Visitor went up to Ira Stephen Bear and said, Ira, you didn't talk about this episode and this episode. And he's like, I know we would be here for eight hours if we were. But I was still, nonetheless, I'm glad they acknowledged it, but I was sad that they didn't talk about stuff like In the Pale Moonlight, which was an amazing episode because it's not a fake. Yeah. <laughs> or a lake. Or a steak. Or Jake. <laughs> and they made a comment, like, yeah, you can see some of those in the deleted scenes. and But they still did not dress, address In the Pale Moonlight uh, at all, which is a bummer. Yeah, there are 17 deleted scenes talking about everything from tribbles to baseball, and I thought they were great. I can see why they cut them. I'm glad they're on the documentary DVD, but you're right. There are still things that are missing. Yeah, one of my favorite parts about the credits. I'm sitting here in the theater. The credits are going, and Nana and Ira are talking. At the very end, she's like, she gets up there and is like, wait, wait, wait. There was one thing, we, the most like, one of the most important scenes in Star Trek. I don't remember how she actually says it. That um, that we didn't talk about, and and in the theater out loud I said, "Oh no!" And then <laughs> not a second later, Alvarez County Floor. I'm like, <laughs> I was right. I was right. <laughs> now, see, I haven't watched Deep Space Nine in 20 years, so that episode was not one of the memories I have of the show. Can you clue me into what was oh, going on Lord. there? This is the first season, I think, episode first season where um. The Wadi comes through the wormhole and like, hey, we've got this really cool board game. Let's go have a board game night in court. Yes, yeah. I remember that. It's like uh, Jumanji. Yeah, yeah. And so they're called El Meringue. And so Bashir, Jadzia, Cisco, and Kira are all teleported into the board game. And they have to go through these puzzles. Well, like Quark and, Quark and maybe Odo or something like that are playing the game upstairs. And, or for real life in, in the IRL and Quarks, and uh, they have they figure out they're, they're in this scene where this little girl is basically playing hopscotch with singing this little melody uh, as she's doing this, and they, the the crew can't get out of this door. This door won't open, and one of them is like, "Oh, what if we just copy what she does?" And they start singing a little song that she's singing, and it's you're cringing as you're watching this scene, watching them do this. Uh, and it's been made fun of for years. It's one of the most the worst scenes of Deep Space Nine. And uh, yeah, they get through the puzzle. Move along home was the name of the episode, I think. The first season is always the strongest. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> you know, one of the other bonus features on the documentary, uh, there was this Star Trek Deep Space Nine in three minutes, and it's somebody presenting himself as a like a college professor speaking right into the screen. No context, no background, it's just completely black. And he's saying, like, here's what happened in Star Trek. And he goes on for about two minutes. And then he gets like, and then at the beginning of season four, they introduced Michael Dorn. And this hand shoots up in front of the camera, blocking him. And he realizes that he has an audience. And he calls on and he says, yes. And the camera switches to the one person in the audience for this lecture. And it's Jonathan Frakes. (laughs) No way. And he says, who? And the, and the professor says, Michael Dorn? And the two just, the camera switches back and forth between them for like 15 seconds, neither of them moving or speaking. Like, and Jonathan Frakes just has this completely blank look on his face. And the professor is like, Worf? And Frakes is like, oh, right. Sorry, continue. 
That's basically me with any actor's name. <laughs> Imagine doing that to your own friend. Uh, I love the pranksters that TNG actors are. And I love that they... Because Jonathan Frakes otherwise doesn't show up anywhere in this documentary. Oh, no, not at all. No. But you know what else? You know what does show up is our first look at what DS9 could have been in high definition. Yeah, that was pretty cool. They, they did a high definition shot of one of the one of the battle scenes. I don't think it was over Cardassia. It was over somewhere else uh, that was in the original show, but, you know, like SD version and and whatever they could have with special effects back then. But now they're like, hey, if we get extra money, I think it was. I think it was an Indiegogo, whatever version of... Um, a stretch goal. Yeah. And like, we can do that. We can do this cool thing. And, and they got the money and they got to show this really cool scene of the Defiant fighting in HD. Yeah, not just that, but I think pretty much any clip from DS9 that was anywhere in the documentary was also cleaned up for HD. So whether it was just Bashir and Garak having coffee on the promenade, it was the first time that scene had ever been shown in high def. Yeah, they were talk- I, I'm guessing it's on there too on the DVD, but in the theater, one of the after credits things was um, they had like an extra 20 minutes of talking about the creation of the documentary and talking about how they actually had to get how to get scenes um for the show, and then they decided to make an HD to clean them up too. Like they had to do all these special requests because uh, episode reels weren't actually like labeled like what's on this stretch, what's on this stretch. They said that they'd have to say like we have a request for minute X through Y, and so they could try to find the scene they're looking for, uh, which sounds like a pain in the ass. And then they took the footage and, and upscaled it, which was really cool. Yeah, that director's roundtable that was shown after the film in theaters. I haven't found that on the Blu-ray anywhere yet, have you? I didn't look yet, to be honest, though. Okay. I hope it's on there because it was a really fascinating look into what you just described, which was the process of upscaling all these old reels. And I, I just wish that the success of this documentary and the crispness and the quality of the high-def scenes that they did produce would convince Paramount slash CBS slash whatever to do the entire series that way. Because I have all seven seasons of DS9 on standard definition DVD, and I almost don't want to watch them because I feel like someday there's going to be a high-def version, and that's the version I want to hold out for. But we have no evidence that they're going to do to DS9 what has already been done for TOS and TNG. Yeah, I think TO or TNG, they barely made uh, any money at all or lost money on that. So I don't know if we're ever going to get it for the other series. At least not anytime soon until it's turned into an automated process with the click of a button. Um, but it's not but I really about like ma- the work. Yeah, it's not about making money. It's about preserving oh, our Star Trek is. heritage. I know. Uh, I know. I acknowledge that this is a business and they need to look at the bottom line and that they can't do things just because the fans want them if not enough fans are willing to spend the money on it. I, I get all that, but... Oh my gosh. I mean, if money wasn't an object, and this is something that is part of our cultural heritage and deserves to be preserved. <laughs> I'm with you there. I'm all for it. You know, they, they, they did a really good job on the TOS, especially the TOS ones where they remastered, where they like, recreated planets or some updated some of the special effects was still making it feel like it fit. Or on TNG when they cleared it up or uh, and whatnot. I thought it just did really well. And I love it on TNG, they had to cover up some in-jokes with the yes. HD version, because you can actually tell, like, they would have things labeled a certain way, or on screen it was just uh, in jokes, but when you can actually get an HD, you can actually read it, so they actually had to make it real. <laughs> right, I don't know how many of those are in DS9 that have to be cleaned up or removed, but 
I know on on uh, on the promenade there was a directory uh, in the, on some scenes, and I don't. You, I thought you could even see it on HD, but I know they made references to. I think. Well, I think Alderaan, but I know for sure the Jupiter Mining Corp for Red Dwarf got a nod on there. Oh my, I did not know that. Ha! So one of the things that this documentary talked about was the progressive politics of DS9, I guess you could call it. And they talked about how the show addressed war, the consequences of war, homelessness, sexual identity. They also talked about, they, they showed... Brief clips from 9-11 talking about how the terrorism in DS9 predated that. And they also talked about, they, they showed clips of our current president giving a speech about fine people on both sides. They showed newsreels from Charlottesville, which is very recent, just two years yeah, ago. Yeah, that was jarring. Yeah? Did, did you feel that that contributed or distracted from the documentary? I still don't know, and I'd forgotten about it, and I'm doing the rewatch. And but when it happened, I was like, "Oh, that feel like." Online, you'll see people like, "Don't reshare these videos. Don't reshare them." But uh, I don't know if there is a but or if it's this is okay in the sense of, like this is the bullshit that we're going through in 2018 and 2019, uh, and it might be useful for context to have in 20 years that someone wouldn't necessarily have anymore. Uh, I know uh, there's still going to be terrible things happening, but I mean, like, the context of 2019 or 2018 in particular. I mean, so maybe these scenes did need to be included. But just watching it and also knowing how fresh they were, how recent some of those scenes were, uh, really got me like, oh, wow, it's hard. Maybe it needs to be hard. Maybe it needed to be that. Now, you make a good point, which I hadn't considered, that, which is that this documentary is itself a time capsule, which will need context at some point. Yeah. So, like, 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 I know things happened in the 80s and 70s, but but showing the events of... But the things had different context, too. And not saying the context... Uh, um, but, yeah, still everything I would know about that era is in a different context than... Like, if I watch a documentary made in the 90s about TOS, uh, they're going to have a different viewpoint than if they'd made one now or if they made one in the 60s somehow. Uh, you know, so the context, I think, is probably going to be more useful in the future because hmm. we're living it still there are some reviews on amazon for example of this documentary that say well, we liked the history of d space nine but why do they need to add all that sjw stuff to uh, <laughs> and these are truckies who clearly did never watch truck star trek for beyond the surface level <laughs> well a, a common theme in these negative reviews is we love Star Trek Deep Space Nine regardless of who the characters are. We don't care if they're male or female or straight or gay. Why do they have to talk about that? And what I... The, mm, I'm so angry. What that always says to me is, if you don't care, why do you care that other people do? Yeah. Like, what does that matter? Why is somebody else's passion to see strong female characters or to see two women on screen loving each other whatever their genders are, why does it bother you that other people are excited about that? Why can't you let it matter to them? Yeah, yeah. Um, they also revealed, Ira Stephen Bear, that this is something that never came up in the show, but they thought it should have and they wanted to. Garrick was gay. Yeah. Um, I think uh, uh, Robinson made a few jokes about that too. Uh, trying to get like a Bashir into the office, so, like, <laughs> or, or uh, either either 
Bashir was becoming friends with him because he wanted to get with Garrick, or Garrick was trying to entice him into the tailor to get with him. I can't remember, but it was hilarious. And yeah, but I wish they would have. I wish they would have. This is sort of a, a brief academic question. Do you think that a character can be made gay after the fact if it never came up in the show? Uh, this is a tough one. Um, uh, because J.K. Rowling pulled it with um, Dumbledore. Dumbledore. Exactly. Uh-huh. I was just thinking of that. Yep. Uh, I mean, absolutely they can. But then you get the question of why didn't she do it at the time? Why didn't she make it canon? And J.K. still won't. Uh, even though like like she is like keeps uh, double down on it. She still won't do it, even in uh, the Grindelwald movies, Mm -hmm. uh, where it would be relevant. But yeah, I think it's okay. I mean, especially when, like, a lot of people kind of figured it out or could sense something was up there. But uh, it was also the 90s were a different time. I'm not saying it's an excuse, but the 90s were a different time. Like, one of my favorite shows is Legend of Korra. Um, In 2014, the finale showed that Korra uh, walks off with another gal. Uh, um, But because being Nickelodeon... They weren't too sure if they should allow this, so the developers or the creators put it in, in like, literally the last second or two of the show that they're holding hands, and that was huge in 2014. And now I think Nickelodeon has like a few queer characters on their shows, but but even 2014 it was still like, did we put this on a kids show? This is kind of you know, uh, so we could see like in 2000, 1997, 96, all those years having a gay character as a main character. I mean, we were. It was a big deal when we had um, Will, dude, from Will and Grace. Oh yeah. Uh, I mean, a lot of gay characters on TV shows were still jokes. Will and Grace helped change that. But I mean, even when Deep Space Nine still st- first started airing, it was either jokes or very hush hush. And so it was a different time. It was. Like I said, it doesn't make it right, but it was different. Do you wish that they had committed to that storyline? Oh, of course. I'm going to say yeah, of course. But but also, I feel like we never got enough Garrick. Well, you say you say of course, but if they had explored the potential for a relationship between him and Bashir, that would have really changed the Bashir Ezri Dax arc. Yeah. <laughs> You're okay. And that, <laughs> see, the the only concern I have is that once Star Trek canon is established, I tend to look at it the way some people look at the Bible. I'm like, it is written and it is not to be altered. Uh, well, well, but the time would have been different. Time would have been changed, or you know, it could still have be by. No, I, I mean, I'm not objecting to, you know, if they had done this at the time, then that would be fine, you know, and I would have no yeah. objection to that. Yeah. But oh, that's what I'm going to the context. I mean, too. right? Well, yes. I mean, I'm. My objection comes from some weird prescient knowing the future time travel perspective, <laughs> where I was like, "No, this is already done." Where Ezri and Julian get together, you can't. If you were to go back and change that so that Bashir and Garrick got together, I would object to that. It doesn't mean he can't get with both either. It doesn't mean at the same time either. Could have had a fling with Garrick. Well, you kn- and then could have gotten together with Ezri. Well, you know, maybe Doctor Flock shouldn't be the only polyamorous character in Star Trek lore. Yeah. Oh, geez, and Polly was just a big thing in, two, in the early 2000s, let alone even talked about. Right. So, hey, why not let DS9 really push some envelopes here? <laughs> uh, missed opportunities. Anyway, I liked how the uh, Ereber and the other gentleman I forget now, uh, talked about places they thought they did an alright job for pro- being progressive, and then uh, they talked about sexual identity. And they're like, no, we don't get anything. We, addressed, we looked at it, but we did not really discuss it. Uh, which I was like, hey, I'm glad they had that realization. 
we could have done a better job. That's true, but they also said that they addressed homelessness, and that was also really just a single two-part episode. Yeah, yeah. And it doesn't necessarily mean he was right in all his own thing, but I'm, I'm glad they had the retrospective realizing at least they weren't perfect. Yeah, I mean, even Gene Roddenberry said that there were things he wanted to do back in the 60s that TV wasn't ready for. It sounds to me from watching this documentary that DS9 was already pushing boundaries so much, especially with the serialization. It sounds like the studio told them, you're killing Deep Space Nine by making us have people have to watch every single episode. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> and so maybe they're like, you know what? Maybe we should pick our battles. We're choosing to go with serialization. Maybe we shouldn't also try to go with a gay character or sexual identity, for example. Yeah, we'll push. We'll change one variable at a time and see what we can get away with. Right. You know, and I'm really glad they went with serialization because, as they say in the doc, that's the nature of everything now. Yeah, when I think of uh, serialized shows, like that's one of the first examples I can think of. I know there were other examples, but for the most part, Deep Space Nine was one of the first key ones. I cannot think of anything else other... I mean, soap operas. Well, I was just going to say, the only other yeah. show I grew up with, with that nature of storytelling, was Days of Our Lives. <laughs> and maybe that's why um, I originally thought of DS9 as a soap opera in space. And they had actors from DS9 in this documentary reading critical remarks that I assume were written 20 years yeah. ago, and some of them called it soap opera in space, and I'm like, why is that a bad thing? Uh, but, but yeah, Deep Space Nine is one of the first, if not, that really stood out. I'm sure there were shows that had, I mean, there's always exceptions to every rule, right? But uh, it's the one that stands out to me. Yeah, me too. Especially, yeah, in our own personal like cultural time. experiences. <laughs> so the one big part and the connective tissue of this entire documentary that we haven't talked about yet is their proposal for what an eighth season would have looked like. Yeah, they got the, some, like, some of the staff back together, got the, you know, got the game back together again. They made a, started a, a what if, if we make a season eight where it actually takes place now, like 20 years later or so, uh, and what that would look like. And basically, it was kind of showing how the writing process worked. Uh, you know, they would be in a room pitching ideas together and then whiteboarding uh, ideas and threads and whatnot. And I thought that was a really cool process. And then they also made a story along with it. What did you think about their little story? Or the whole the whole bit itself? I like that it's set 20 years in the future, kind of like the future DS9 that we saw in The Visitor. I like that they had all the original actors back together, like Ron Moore, who's since gone on to do Battlestar Galactica, etc. I feel like they were trying to cram in too many threads into one episode. They basically brought back every character except Odo, which is remarkable because at the end of Deep Space Nine, a lot of characters went their own directions. O'Brien, Odo, Worf, and Sisko all left DS9 at the end. And here, you know, and here they are all back in the very first episode of Season 8. You know what actually makes me think of? This is their... their episode is very much a very 90s way of bringing the game back together again. I don't know why, it just feels like when you're describing it, it's very much like, yep, we need to get everyone back in here ASAP. Uh, whereas uh, like a TV now, they would probably like bring people in over the first two, three episodes. Right. It kind of reminds me of in the TNG movies, they always had to find an excuse for Worf to be back on the Enterprise. <laughs> yep. How convenient. I do like that they killed off a character right in the very opening scene of this proposed eighth season, because I think you need to establish urgency and what the stakes are, and that this isn't just another season of DS9. This is 
a place that is still very dangerous and where nobody is immortal. Yeah. And you don't get to see again the gray areas where characters we loved are now kind of pushing the uh are the antagonists. Yeah, it's this time as around. they said, it's a very modern take on storytelling where characters lose their way and heroes might become villains. You know, they're certainly not the villains of their own stories, but it's easier to believe that they might do this when you remember it's been 20 years. People change. I even liked the sort of animation style where it was like one frame every two seconds. Yeah, they, 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 if you didn't see it, they, they actually just draw it. Uh, these are, and then as they're retelling, the scene will change. Like uh, they, they joked about which character they're going to kill, and they thought about, like, I'm way here. I thought it should have been O'Brien. Uh, and they showed him like in front of a warp core blowing up. Like that. <laughs> that was hilarious. I was actually talking to somebody just last night who, due to the time in her life when DS9 debuted, it was just a, a rough time in her life, and she really can't go back and watch DS9 now. And she specifically said, I just can't watch them continue to beat up Miles O'Brien. Mm-hmm. Like, it's true. Which is something they did not address in the documentary or extra parts. Yeah, he was interviewed for the documentary, but he didn't really get a lot of screen time, even though he was one of the opening credit characters. Yeah, yeah. I wish they could have had him more. I mean, I wish they had all of them on them more. I wish they could have had an eight-hour documentary at that point. But In the proposed eighth season, they have a lot of character arcs that are very believable, like Cassidy Yates and Benjamin Sisko's son is in Starfleet. Nog is in Starfleet. Molly O'Brien is in Starfleet. Uh, I can see all that. One thing I wasn't sure about, though, is Kira Norris being a Vedic in the Bajoran religion. Uh-huh, uh-huh. Did you find that believable? Uh, plausible. She she was close to her religion. It was something I forgot about in, until I rewatched. She was very close to her religion. Um, like her links with Vedic and Brial and um, Kaiwin. Like I, I, no, it it was, seemed very plausible to me, especially as she's getting older. You know, like, like not as you know, young and able to fight. Mm. Uh, you know, you change up different ways, and you know, she was a leader mm. for so long. She helped ran the helped uh, run the Bajoran. Yeah. She helped run the Bajoran militia. She was the figurehead on Deep Space Nine. Uh, yeah, I could totally see her. Be, I mean, being a religious leader is basically being a leader in Bajoran world. So I could see that. Even though she was excommunicated from her own religion for a season. I mean, that's. just doing her thing yeah her religion is very important to her you're right and i can see it being so important that she is a vedic but at the same time it just is a huge character arc to basically go from terrorist although certainly that's never how we see ourselves to being a leader in a religion i don't know that we have i mean in my own limited experience growing up catholic i can't think of any examples of somebody who went from the military to a, a prominent religious leader yeah, uh, like, uh, yeah. Just our world's just so different. Uh, at least in our Western world, it's just so different. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Anything else about this documentary that resonated with you? I just overall, I really enjoyed it. I like. Uh, I could understand why some of the deleted scenes didn't go in there, but but then they also had some great scenes in, in the deleted scenes where how like um, James Dean or uh, Alemo got got their start in show business, which I thought were really cool. People talked about what they called it, what was it the friends behind the camera. They talked about what they actually did to make things work on stage. Or the hardest episode of the film was Rocks and Shoals, where they had Jem Hadar out in 120 degree heat for two, three days filming their scenes. I did watch that one, yeah. Yeah. Like they're like cutting holes in the rubber suits, the masks, and dumping water into them. 
just to help them cool <laughs> off. Uh, yeah. Or, or, or um, one of the folks who helped run the doors, like the, the quote-unquote automated doors, telling, telling a scene about how he, he accidentally clipped uh, Terry Farrell in the butt. <laughs> in an early scene, she like clicked him off. <laughs> Whoops. Uh, or how he's like, you know, a lot of people fear they have like proximity sensors, but I like started to change it to like intention sensors because if you walked up to the door and then turned around to talk to somebody, you didn't want an open door behind you. Yeah, and I said like like yeah, that's how it would really work, but it just felt weird in a lot of scenes, so they didn't. So they like he joked like yeah, these doors have intention sensors, not proximity <laughs> sensors. You no, know, there was one anecdote that was not in this documentary that I heard Aaron Eisenberg relate on a podcast several years ago, where after Rom married. Chase Masterson, Lita. Uh, Aaron Eisenberg joked to Jake where there should be a scene where they're just like sitting on the top level of the promenade watching people as they go by and there goes Lita and Jake would be like, dude, that's your mom. And and, <laughs> Ron, and uh, Nog would be like, shut up, Jake. Like, but dude, that's your mom. And it was a total riff off Bill and Ted's Excellent Adventure because the same thing <laughs> happened there. And, it, and, and Sarah Lofton thought that was so funny. He's like, Dude, you should mention this joke to the writers. I bet they would do it. And then Aaron and I was like, like no, I, they would never do that. That's awful. And then like years after the show went off the air, Aaron Eisenberg mentioned this to one of the writers. And the writer's like, you totally should have told us. We would have totally done that. And Aaron like, Eisenberg's like, damn it. Oh, oh well. That's amazing. So. Uh, the latest scenes also cover uh, uh, something more about Avery Brooks' acting that I thought I could see why they cut it, but I felt like it was good to watch. Uh, they didn't show clips of this, but it was retelling people like Armin, Renee, and Avery, or no, Armin and Renee talking about um, Renee and, and Avery would yell at each other sometimes. Like, this is pure anger, but they still loved each other kind of thing. Talked about uh, family tension, they called it. Um, where, where just moments like that that show how much of a person Avery Brooks actually is on stage. It seems really cool. I really liked the opening and closing of the documentary itself because it had some of the DS9 actors singing together. Yeah, I think they do this at uh, the, um, the Vegas Trek thing I'm drawing a blank on. They do it at Star Trek Vegas and other conventions. I think they call themselves the Rat Pack. I also noticed in one of the extras, they mentioned how they weren't allowed to use in this documentary the opening and closing soundtrack from the TV show Deep Space Nine for the documentary opening and closing, which is one of the reasons why they had the singers at either end. And so they also created some original Star Trek-like music to use as well. And all this together makes me wish that the What We Left Behind soundtrack was available separately, because I would totally listen to that. Yeah, there's something I liked there. it. Uh, anything else about this documentary you want to talk about? Uh, I love the very last clip of the extra scenes. They had deleted scene was um they're talking about how they talking about uh, setting up trouble of troubles the whole concept and they had this idea of using green screen and putting people in TOS scenes and uh, well well kind of like storyboarding this and figuring this out they've actually recorded a scene and showed it to uh, I I know um Michael Moore and others and showed them a scene that they had done not telling them what they had done. Uh, with the green screen and whatnot, like that. And they're like, okay, yeah, you showed, us me, you showed me a clip of TOS. What's the big deal? And I'm like, no, this guy isn't actually there. And they're like, oh. And that's when it clicked on what they needed to do for that episode. Wow, that is a cool proof of concept. 
I like that. Yeah. <laughs> and in that little bit, they showed like, how they did it, and they had like, you know, Terry Farrell on there, who she was all excited. She's like, this show that I loved was my favorite show growing up. I actually got to be in it. Not many people can say that. Uh, so I think that was, I think I like the whole thing. I like just seeing people's. Uh, I really like seeing people's perspectives on things. Like some of my favorite books are biographies, and so things like that. So seeing it in some documentary form, and you know, almost everyone was there. Yeah, it made me really sad at the end when they're all laughing and smiling and they're so happy to be together and to look back on this wonderful once-in-a-lifetime experience. And we can go back and we can rewatch the show on DVD. And maybe it's because I haven't, but it just made me so melancholy to know that this show is finite. It's done. And even if we go back and rewatch it, it'll always be the same and there won't ever be any more. These characters aren't growing. They had these amazing evolutions and character journeys for seven years and then it stopped and that's the nature of every show but I, I, I wish that we really could go back I really wish there was another season and I know there won't be but we've seen characters from Voyager show up on the new Star Trek Picard series who knows where the DS9 characters are 20 years later yeah and there's always Star Trek online <laughs> and other mediums but it's never quite exactly yeah. the same so if you want to watch this documentary, you can go to ds9documentary.com. It's also available on Amazon Prime Video. You can get the Blu-ray for about $18.59, the DVD for $12.69. It's available from Apple, $14.99 to buy, $4.99 to rent. Pretty much almost anywhere that sells physical or streaming media, you can get What We Left Behind, looking back at Star Trek D-Space Nine. Sabriel, I have been so happy to chat with you again about Star Trek. These last four months have just been a barren wasteland without Transporter Lock. I know, right? It's a little weird. Now I can't wait to talk about Star Trek Picard, or we can talk about him going to Anaheim Convention. Yeah, we're going to have a lot to talk about, (laughs) because there's going to be a lot more Star Trek coming down the pipeline. Yeah, I think Discovery, I think they're starting to work on the next season. Yes, season three will also be in 2020, right up there with Picard. Until next time. Hit it. If you've enjoyed this episode, please leave a review on iTunes and keep your hailing frequencies open by following us on Twitter at TransporterLock or subscribing to our podcast and email newsletter at TransporterLock.com. But there's one more thing that I this really stuck out for me in the documentary. Odo was talking about how problematic his makeup was and all that rubber that he had to wear and how constrictive it was and how limiting it was on his motions and his activities and how he couldn't eat solid food. And I'm like, of course, it's because you're not a solid. You're a changeling. You can only eat changeling food. So, anyway. <laughs>